First John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's go before the Lord and ask for his help. Our Father, we thank you so much for the glory of who you are. We thank you for this truth that you are light and that in you is no darkness whatsoever. And I pray that you would help me, Father, as I try to help us understand what this means. And I pray that you would help all of us not only to understand this with our minds, but also to receive it deep in our hearts. Lord, we want to know you and the power of your resurrection. Lord, we want to know you and your will and ways in the earth. So please come now, speak to us by your word, and for what you will do, we give you our thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this week, the United Methodist Church held a special session of their general conference in St. Louis, Missouri, to vote on the denomination's policy about ordaining homosexuals, blessing same-sex unions, and performing same-sex marriages. Since their founding in the 18th century, the Methodists have upheld a biblical vision of gender, sexuality, and marriage. And then in 1972, as the sexual revolution was really exploding, they adopted a policy that upheld that position as well. But like every other mainline denomination in the United States, they have received increasing pressure from the liberal wing of their church to change their stand and to embrace alternative visions of sexuality and marriage. Because of this, the Council of Bishops of the United Methodist Church, which is their ruling council, they appointed a commission in 2016 to study this issue and to make recommendations to the denomination. They took about two years to do that, And just recently, they came to the denomination with three particular options, and that's why the Methodists met this earlier this week, was to vote on these options. Option one would be to scrap their existing policy and to embrace homosexuality and everything that goes along with it. They would not force that upon their churches, like the United Methodist Church right down the road here is actually a good Bible-preaching conservative church. The denomination would not force this value upon them, but it would open up the door for every church that does embrace those types of values to, to, to be free to walk in that way. Option two was an option of them uh, as a church um, gathering together in units, not around geography, but around theology. So right now, like every other denomination, Methodists are organized in the Western United States, in the Eastern United States, in Africa, and Europe, and wherever else they are. But this proposal was to say, scrap the geography and just let our churches come together uh, based on what they believe. And in this way, they thought they might be able to preserve the denomination and, and, and yet let people have different convictions. And option number three was just to keep the traditional point of view to uphold biblical values and to continue to go in the way that they've gone since their their founding. Sadly, the 
Council of Bishops actually recommended the first plan. The leading organization of the Methodist Church recommended that the church scrap the traditional plan and embrace homosexuality. However, 53% of their 863 delegates voted in favor of the traditional plan. They voted in favor of a, a, a biblical vision of gender, sexuality, and marriage. That's encouraging to me and it's sad to me at the same time. It's encouraging to me because the Methodists are the second largest Protestant denomination in the United States, and I'm grateful to God that they upheld a biblical vision of sexuality. But it's very sad to me because only 53% of their delegates voted for that. It was a 53 to 47 vote. And the truth of the matter is that 30% of the 53% were the African delegates. If it was not for the Church of Africa, the United Methodist Church would have fully embraced homosexuality this week. Think about that. Think about that. The church from abroad, around the world, coming to the United States to press upon us to embrace biblical values. So I don't know what's going to come in the United Methodist Church, but I do want to say that the reason that I'm bringing this up at a, at a, in a worship service, a Glory of Christ Fellowship this morning, is because the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America is under a very fierce assault. As we saw last week, and even in our own state, we're facing very powerful forces from outside the church that are strongly pressuring us to let go of the authority of the Bible, to cast off our vision of God and to, and to alter our beliefs in God and therefore to alter our positions on morality. But I think much worse than that, we are facing fierce wolves who have risen up from within the church over a number of decades and who themselves have already cast off biblical authority who themselves are redefining the nature of God in the name of Jesus, and who themselves are redefining morality as the Bible and the church has always understood it for many, many centuries, in fact, millennia, and they're doing that in the name of Jesus as well. With regard to the particular wolves that are, that are, are, are rising up within the church now, they're doing three particular things, and they're following in this order. So there are three words that I want to put before you today that I think are very important for our purposes and for John's purposes as well. Authority, truth, and morality. Remember that, in that order. Authority, truth, and morality. This is the order of attack, and it's the order of the solution as well. So the wolves that have risen up from within the church in our day, they begin with authority. Decades ago, the liberal wing of the church cast off the authority of the Bible. I studied in a liberal seminary, so I, I, I studied right alongside with these people. I have not just read books about them, I have walked with them. And I will tell you, even though I greatly disagree, I came to love some of these people. Some of them are just deceived, others of them know exactly what they're doing. But I'm telling you, in either case, they have cast off the authority of the Bible. They do not believe that the Bible is the God-breathed word of God that came through human beings given to, the, to humanity and specifically to the church. They do not believe that. They believe that the Bible is a social product of men who were living in a patriarchal society and used God and divine and religious categories to control and constrain society. That's what they believe. They believe that the Bible is a social product and that it's a problem. They also happen to believe, though, that in the United States of America, the only way to bring about true and lasting change is to use biblical categories to do that, so they are not shy about taking biblical categories and twisting them. But it begins with casting off authority. I'm telling you, at the heart, this debate is about the authority and the nature of the Bible. That's really what it's about. 
Then, having cast off the authority of the Bible, these wolves have redefined the nature of God in many ways. We don't have time for me to give you examples, but I could multiply examples of how these people, once you have let go of the Bible, you're sort of free to create God in your own image, and boy, have they ever done that. And whenever you redefine God, the third thing always happens. They end up redefining morality. Please understand this. When you redefine God, you automatically redefine everything else. Every single heresy in the history of the church goes back to a redefinition of God. Every single heresy in the history of the church begins with a redefinition of God. When you redefine God, you automatically redefine everything else. So, beloved, I want to ask you to ponder what I'm saying. Because I'm telling you that the wolves that have risen up from within the church to lead us astray have done it in this particular way. Cast off authority, redefine God, redefine morality in that order. The church that was in John's day was facing different details, but the exact same uh, dynamic. The core of the problem facing the church in Ephesus and in Asia Minor and in the world of that day, the core of the problem is exactly the problem that we're facing now. There were people that rose up within John's church and cast off the authority of God along with God's messengers, namely the apostles. They rejected the apostles' authority so that they could reject their teaching, and once they rejected their teaching, they did those two other things. They redefined God in culturally appropriate and persuasive ways, and then they redefined morality. This is exactly what was happening in John's church. And so it's very important for us to understand how he begins his letter. In the first four verses we saw last week that he begins by asserting that Jesus is God. He says that he was in the beginning. He says that he is eternal life. And because he stands in the place of God, he has all authority. And as the one who has all authority, he then sent the apostles to proclaim to the world what they had seen and heard in him, and to proclaim to the world the things that Jesus had taught. In other words, Jesus vested his authority in the gospel to go out and teach to the world the things that Jesus had taught them. They did not go to teach their own wisdom. They did not go on their own authority. They took the truth of God and proclaimed it with the authority of God. John begins his letter by trying to establish that big time. First, the authority gets established. Then the a proper definition of God is a, a, a picture of God's nature is painted that is accurate and authoritative. And then the next thing John does is he begins to touch on morality. He's going to do this more, but this is what verses 5 to 10 are about. He's making this journey from authority to God to morality now. So you'll notice in verse 5, he begins again with making a statement about the nature of God, and that's what we're going to focus on today. Just going to spend all of our time on verse 5. But then next week, if God is willing, we're going to come back and look at the following verses that are all about morality. In verse 6, you'll see the first objection that came up in his church Probably John is quoting from the very lips of his, his opponents. He's dealing with a moral issue in verses 6 and 7. And then if you'll just glance there, you'll see in verses 8 and 9, there are a couplet as well. There's another moral issue. If you say you have no sin, there were some people there saying they did not have a sin problem. They may have even been saying they did not have a sin nature. And so John's got to deal with this. This is a moral implication of who God is, you see? 
And then in verse 10, there's yet another version. If you say you're not sinning, if you're not in the process of sinning, if, you're, if your life has no sin in it, John says you're calling God a liar, and that, that, that's an issue. See, these are moral implications of the nature of who God is. That's what's happening here. John is establishing authority. He's painting an accurate and authoritative vision of God, and then he's drawing out some moral implications. Authority, truth, morality. We're going to look at the details today and and next week, if God is willing, but I really want to press on you again to just notice this pattern. It's very, very important. Authority, truth, and morality. So with that, let's dive in to the details of verse 5. John writes, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, I don't mean to keep uh, beating this drum, but I just have to point out to you again, please notice how John began in verse five. Please look at the exact words. This is the message we have heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaimed to you. Notice he's establishing the source of his teaching And he's establishing the line of authority. That's what he's up to. These are not throwaway words. He's saying that I got this from Jesus himself and so did the other apostles. We're not making this stuff up. We're not here trying to promote ourselves. We have no desire to exalt ourselves over against our opponents and argue that we're right and they're wrong at an earthly level. We are speaking as those who have been taught by Jesus Christ himself. The source of our teaching is Jesus, and therefore the source of our authority is Jesus. He sent us into the world. Please notice this, beloved. The source of authority in the life of the church is just everything. Everything flows from there. Wherever you think you can get true teaching about God will determine what you end up thinking about God. So this is super, super important. And on the basis of that authority, John said, then we're sent into the world to proclaim this message to you. First, he meant the church in Ephesus, and then the church in Asia Minor. That was the broader area in which he was living and ministering. And then I think he even had in mind, though, the church around the world, and even down to our time. John is speaking to us now. He is proclaiming something from the mouth of Jesus and with the authority of Jesus. And I also believe with the joy of Jesus. And the specific thing that he wants to say is look at God and understand this about God. God is light. And in God is not even a speck of darkness. In God there is no darkness at all. This comes from the heart of Jesus. This comes from the mouth of Jesus. This comes with the full authority of Jesus. Now, This way of talking about God is very important to John. He uses the words light and darkness over and over and over again. 45% of the uses of the word light in the New Testament are in John's writings. Even more so, 87.5%, yes, I'm anal enough that I figured that out, 87.5% of the uses of the word darkness in the New Testament are in John's writings. He is always talking about God in these terms, that God is light. And he's always using darkness as a way of saying that God is not that. God is this, and God is not that. So with regard to the word light, he uses this word in three specific ways that are interrelated with each other to talk about God. And I want to just walk you through those ways and sort of help you to see the vision of what John has in mind when he says God is light. First of all, the word light sometimes is, is used of God to talk about his visible 
glory, the visible glory of God. So let me just read from you, to, to you from the end of the book of Revelation. Here's what John said. This comes from Revelation 21. And the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, the place in which the people of God will dwell with God forever and ever and ever, the city has no need of a sun or of a moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is light, and someday he will actually be the literal, physical, visible light of his people. By his light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into his light, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, no darkness at all. And again, John says in chapter 22, and night will be no more. No darkness in God, no darkness in the city of God. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be the light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is in keeping with what the author of Hebrews said about God. He said about Jesus in particular, he said that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the shining forth of the glory of God. He is the visibility of the glory of God. And this is why John said in the beginning of Revelation that the face of Jesus, when he saw it, he said the face of Jesus was like the sun shining in its full strength. Now right now, we're in a place in our state of Minnesota here where we would just love to see five, six, seven days, maybe weeks in a row of sunshine. Can I get an amen to that? Imagine a day when the sun is high in the sky and just shining so bright. If you were to look right into it, it would damage your eyes because it's just so bright and so powerful and so glorious. John said that's what Jesus is like. His face just shines bright like the sun shining in full strength, but his light is not damaging. His light is healing. Oh, beloved, behold your God. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. He is infinitely and utterly glorious. And in him there is no darkness or night. There is no impurity or blight. There is no spot or blemish. He is perfectly light with nothing of the opposite inside of him. He is so perfectly light that in the new creation, all who belong to him and all who believe in him, all who are with him forever and ever will live in light. And think about this. If there is no shadow in God, there is no shadow in the city of God. And this week, as I was pondering this, it hit me just so hard that when we come into the presence of God and we're living with him forever and ever, we will never see a shadow again. You will never, for all eternity, ever put your eyes on a shadow again. Because somehow the nature of God's light is that it is utterly devoid of shadow. Behold your God. He is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Second, the word light sometimes refers to the life that is in Jesus Christ. And then John contrasts this to the darkness of not knowing Jesus, which is a kind of living darkness. So when John talks about darkness, sometimes the implication of it is death. But in John's mind, death is not just ceasing to exist. Death is being out of fellowship with God. So to be out of fellowship with God is to live in darkness, but it's a kind of living darkness because you're living outside of fellowship with God. 
is not a dead thing. It's a horrible living thing. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John writes at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and here's the key now, that life was the light of men. The life was light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just a couple verses later, John says that the true light, which is Jesus Christ, gives light to everyone. And I think in this case, he's simply saying that Jesus Christ gives life to everyone. No human being who has ever lived or will ever live has life outside of Jesus Christ. He gives light to everyone in that he gives life to everyone. And this is what he meant in part when he said, I am the light of the world. Outside of Jesus, there's no life. Beloved, behold your God. In him there is life. In him there is light. And there is no admixture of darkness or death at all. Not a single piece. There's nothing in death that can overcome the life of Christ. There's nothing in the immorality of death that can overwhelm his utter holiness, his infinite holiness. So even when the darkness of death entered into this world through unbelief, Jesus Christ manifests his life on this earth to overcome the darkness. He took on flesh and he lived a perfectly righteous life. He lived in the light and he shined as a light. And then he succumbed to darkness of his own volition. He handed himself over to people who had utterly evil intents. They took his life. They hung him on a cross. They gave him a shameful criminal's death so that he could pay the penalty for sin for everyone who had sinned against him. And then he went into a grave, but by the power of the life that is in him, he overcame death. He walked out of his grave, and he ascended to the right hand of his father, Darkness could not overcome the light, period, and end of story. And in this way, because he overcame death through death, the Bible says that he has become the source of eternal life to everybody who believes in him. What does it mean to say that God is light? It means to say that he is life to us, beloved. And the way that we access that life is simply by believing in him. So here's what Paul said about Jesus with regard to light. Paul said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, God who created all things with nothing more than the power of his words, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The way that God created the world was by speaking his words, let there be light, and there was light. The way God saves people is in just the same way. He speaks the light of the life of Christ into our hearts, and bam, we come to life. We do have a part in the process. We put our faith in him, but our faith, even our faith, is a gift from God. The reason we're saved is because God chooses to shine his light into the darkness of our hearts. God is light means God is life. Oh, beloved, behold your God. To say that he is light is to say that he is life, period and end of story. Third way that the word light is used in relation to God has to do with holiness. It doesn't exactly mean holiness, 
but it has to do with holiness, and it's compared to the darkness of unbelief and rebellion. One of the most famous passages of the Bible, John talks about this, and it's a little bit long, so I'm going to ask you to turn to this one with me. Will you go with me to John chapter 3? I want to read John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. That's the super famous one at all the football games and all of that. But I want to take it down to verse 21 because John touches on light and darkness, holiness and rebellion and all of that there. I want to walk us through this a little bit. So John says, beginning in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. They'll have the light of life in them. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In other words, the reason God sent his Son into the world was to bring about the salvation of all who belong to him. That's what he was up to. The light was coming into the world to overcome the darkness. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The judgment that brings about the condemnation of all who don't believe is this. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the reason. Here, darkness is not exactly equated to the evil works, but the darkness of unbelief is coming because of the evil works. They're loving their evil works and not the Lord. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, hates the Lord, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen, not that they're great, but that God is great. It may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So as I said in this passage, the word light refers to Jesus himself, not directly to holiness, but to Jesus himself. The word darkness refers not so much to our evil deeds, but to the unbelief that brings about our evil deeds. To love the darkness is to love living outside of the authority of God and outside of fellowship with God. To love the darkness is to love setting up a God of our own making, either our very selves or some other God of our own making, so that we can essentially live by our own authority. You remember in Israel, when they came out of Egypt, as soon as Moses went up on the mountain to get the law of God, what was the first thing they did? I mean, no sooner does he get to the top of that mountain and they begin to worship God in idolatrous ways. And I put it that way because they asked Aaron to fashion for them a cow, which is a a kind of idol they were used to worshiping, but then they called their false god by God's very name. It took the name of God and twisted the nature of God, and in this way, they falsely worshiped. In this way, they set up an authority unto themselves. God was on the top of that mountain with Moses speaking to Moses about his people. They threw his authority off to the side and said, no, we will create God in our own image. That's what it means to live in the darkness. It's to set up gods who tell us what we already want to hear. And people who live in the darkness, they don't want to come to Jesus because they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to be confronted with the truth. They don't want to be confronted with the state of their hearts and the nature of their rebellion. They don't want to change their life. They don't want to follow Jesus and actually walk in the light. They want to live in a way that honors themselves and not their creator. 
So when we say God is light, you know the point is, we really focus our attention back on God now. The point is this, God is not like us. He's not like us at all. He is light, he is perfectly light, and he lives in perfect consistency with the light that he is. Behold your God, beloved. Not only is he light, but he walks in the light. God is truth, and so he delights in truth, and he never lies. God has never even thought of a lie. God is good, and therefore he delights in good, and he abhors evil, and he does not do evil. Not a single act he's ever done, not a single thought he's ever had has been evil. God is perfectly righteous, and so he does what is right, and he hates wickedness. He does not do wicked things. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Recently, there's been a major evangelical church where it seemed to be Bible preaching and Bible teaching, but it's come out that underneath there was all kinds of corruption, there was greed, there was uh, hunger for power, the whole thing. It's just a mess. It's a horrible mess. There's real hypocrisy in that particular church and everything that they touched, the hypocrisy shot all the way through it. And that's super sad. But you know, even in the best uh, examples we have, heroes of the faith, name your person, either from history or, or, or now. Whoever you could name, I will tell you, there is still, even if they did a good thing and never fell to the power of scandal and all that stuff, there was still an admixture of light and darkness inside their hearts. The best of human heroes are a complex mixture of good and evil. They're a complex mixture of light and darkness. John Piper's been the, the closest super famous Christian I've ever had an actual real relationship with. And I've never seen any scandal at Bethlehem. I've seen things happen and I've seen Bethlehem handle them well. But I have seen the sin nature of John Piper because he's just a man, right? He is a mixture of light and darkness. God is not like that. God is light. He is purely light. There is no scandal in the kingdom of God. There is nothing hidden that's going to come to light and destroy the gospel. He is light. He is purely light. He is only light. He is no darkness whatsoever. Beloved, behold your God. He is trustworthy. He lives in a way that is perfectly consistent with his character. And I don't know about you, but that just sets my heart to worshiping. Because it makes us free. We can worship him without worrying that the whole thing's going to fall apart someday. And I praise God for that. He is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. Now, since God is light, and since he saves people out of darkness by shining the light of Christ into our lives, his goal in our lives is to actually make us sons of light. I take these words right from the mouth of Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. About two days before he died on the cross, Jesus said to his disciples, the light, I am among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. There's a good thing to remember there. Walk while you have the light, and lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going, so while you have the light, believe in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? The first thing it means is to believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. While you have light, put all your faith in Jesus Christ so that you may become sons of light. Oh, I love this. 
Walk with him who is light so that you might become like him who is light. We'll talk about this more next week, but I just love that this is his heart for his people. He doesn't want us to just be obedient robots who do what we're supposed to do because we're told to do it. He wants us to love him with all of our hearts and become like him by his transformative power. And the way we become like the light is by hanging out with the one who is light. Have you ever noticed this? You are, and I are just wired to behold and become. Like the people you spend the most time thinking about, you tend to become like those people. The people you tend to spend the most time listening to how they speak, you end up speaking like them. The people that you hang out the most with and the way that they act, you end up acting like them. We are just hardwired to behold and become. And God said, I made you like this because I want you to become like me. Here's what Paul said. Paul said that we, with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I know that's a little abstract and maybe hard to understand, but the principle is so simple. If you spend time with Jesus, you're gonna become like Jesus. It's just that simple. His glory is not just to be admired. His glory actually transforms every person that it touches. And this is what he wants for us. He wants us to become sons and daughters of light as we walk in fellowship with the one who is light. And as we do that, as we walk in fellowship with him and become like him, guess what happens? Our joy just goes to the moon. We are writing these things. This is verse four. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is writing to maximize and intensify our joy in God. And the way that happens is by walking in fellowship with God. God is light. There's no darkness in him whatsoever. And this is his hope for his children. He wants us to be like him as well. Now before I draw the message to a close, I want to address a question that's been on my mind all week. And it actually touches on what you talked about at the, at the communion devotional today, Eric. All week long I've been asking myself, why did John say God is light instead of just saying God is holy? Why didn't he say it that way? There's other parts of the Bible that say God is holy. There's nothing wrong with saying God is holy, but John made a very specific choice here to say God is light rather than saying God is holy. One reason that you could, an answer that you could give to that question is just to say that while light and holiness have something to do with each other, they're not exactly equivalent. So maybe John would say, well, I didn't want to say holy because I wanted to say something a little bit different, but I don't, I don't really think that's the right answer. Because from verse five forward, John is drawing out moral implications that have to do with holiness. He's really trying to get us to think about the brilliant holiness of God. And so why didn't he just say God is holy and in him there is no sinfulness at all or no deceitfulness at all? Well, I think at the end of the day, the reason John did this is because he's trying to communicate about God to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can relate to. And just like Eric said earlier, holiness is a beautiful thing, but it's abstract. I said to the people at the marriage seminar yesterday, it's like if I was just to say, now, now go out there and be holy, even if you wanted to, you'd probably be thinking, okay, but what do I do? I don't, I don't know what to do. So John chooses to say that God is light because we can relate to light. We can understand light. There's something about God that's actually being communicated by the light we're experiencing right now. So let me just explain what I mean. Let's imagine that 
later today with all this snow, maybe you get a pair of snowshoes on and you take some trail and you go off out into the woods right in the middle of the day. It looks like the sun is just shining brilliant and bright today. You'd be able to see perfectly. You'd be able to see right where you're going. You'd be able to see everything around you. You'd be able to enjoy nature. You'd just be able to enjoy God. But what if you went out on that same trail in the total black of night with no moon? Maybe there's cloud cover so you can't even see the stars and it's just dark as dark can be and you can't see where you're going. You can't tell if you're about to run into something or if you're about to walk off of something. You're stumbling because you have no sight. We all understand the difference between walking on a trail in the sunlight and walking on a trail in the darkness. We all get this. Or how about when you go home and it's, it's dark, but you walk in, you turn on the lights, you can see where all your furniture is, and you can navigate around your house very easily because there's lights, right? But if you walk into that same home as well as you know it, if all the lights are off and it's just really dark inside the house, even though you know it well, if you're anything like me, you're going to end up kicking your shin or stubbing your toe or something, right? Despite your best effort, walking in darkness is difficult for human beings at best. And God talks to us in terms of light and darkness because we can understand it. And it's as if God is saying, when the sun shines, when it rises up over the horizon and covers the earth with light, just think to yourself, I am like that. God is like that. God is light. Where God is, things are visible. Where God is, nothing is hidden. Where God is, things can be seen. Where God is, things are plain. And when the sun goes down and darkness covers the land, you can think to yourself, God is not like this. He's not like this at all. God is not a God that loves confusion. God is not a God that likes to hide things from his people. God is not a God that likes to make it hard for them to walk down the path. His word is a a light for our feet and a lamp for our path, right? God wants us to see. God is light. Every time you walk into your house and it's dark, and you flip the light on, you can think to yourself, God is light. God's like this. Every time God comes around, clarity comes around. God comes around, I can see. God comes around, I can understand. The Lord compares himself to light because he's trying to help us understand who he is. And I want to encourage you, every single day as you experience light, understand this is a gift from God to you because he's trying to communicate to you about himself. You see that sun out there today, think to yourself, our Father is like that. He is light, and there's absolutely no darkness in him whatsoever. Beloved, behold your God and worship him. In John's church, some wolves had risen up to lead the people astray. They began by casting off the authority of God and of his messengers. They redefined God to suit their purposes, and then they redefined morality to suit their purposes. We'll see that more next week. For this reason, John wisely began by reestablishing the authority of God and his messengers, by wisely and accurately and authoritatively painting a picture of God as the creator of all things, as the author of eternal life, and as the one who is light. And then, as we'll see next week, he begins to paint a picture of morality for the people of God that is consistent with the character of God. So I encourage you to read ahead and ponder those things. But for now, I wanna ask you to just do two things with today's message. 
First of all, I want to ask you again to think about this relationship between authority, truth, and morality. I can't tell you how important this is. I've been thinking about these three things with regard to every heresy that I'm aware of in the, in the history of the church, and it just works one after another after another. This is how the devil works. Undermine authority, redefine God, redefine morality. So just spend some time thinking about that. Spend some time getting, that, getting your mind around that. Because the more we understand it, the more we're going to understand what John is doing, and the more we see what John is doing, the more we're going to be empowered to face down the wolves in our generation as well. Second thing I want to ask you to do is just put all that aside at some point too, and think about who your father is, and just ponder this truth that God is light. In other words, at some point I want to encourage you to put aside all controversy and heresy and just delight in your God. Think about him. Meditate upon him. As you come into his presence and meditate on the fact that he is light, oh beloved, he will give you insight. He will touch you. He will even transform you. So I want to encourage you, put down other things that are not as important. You don't need to watch 25 YouTube clips. You don't need to listen to 100 podcasts this week. Think about God. Think about him. Ponder his light and let him change your life. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much for being the good shepherd of the sheep. We thank you so much for caring about your church and protecting your church in every single generation. We thank you for causing John to rise up and write the things that he did about you and about his opponents of the day. We thank you so much that these things are equipping to us as we face down things in our own day. But Father, I also want to thank you just that you revealed things to us about yourself today. And I want to pray for your help I want to ask you to give us the desire to put other things aside so that we can ponder you and think about who you are. I want to ask for your power, your, your help to see your glory and to delight in it. And I want to ask, Father, that as we see you, that you would change us. Lord, we want to be like you. So come by the power of your hand and the grace of your spirit and transform us into your image, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.